It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Destined for greatness. Annie Lay was the valedictorian of her class at Union Mine High School. Her classmates voted her most likely to be the next Einstein. Annie's hard work and intellect sent her all the way to the University of Rochester, where she studied cell developmental biology. After graduation, she was accepted to the graduate program in pharmacology at Yale, becoming a regular at the university's campus laboratory. Annie was close to marrying her college sweetheart. Dedicating herself to her lab studies while simultaneously planning her dream wedding, Annie's bright future was abruptly halted. The morning of September 8, 2009, 24-year-old Annie entered the Yale campus lab at 10 Amistad Street for the final time. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Annie's disappearance shook the Yale campus community to its core and raised so many questions. Was it cold feet ahead of the marriage? School-induced anxiety? Some wondered whether Annie was kidnapped. Others worried of a more sinister explanation. Investigators would soon find bloody clothing stowed away behind a ceiling tile, turning the investigation from missing person to murder. September 13, 2009, was supposed to be one of the happiest days of Annie's life, as that was the day she was supposed to walk down the aisle to marry her true love. However, it was on that very day that authorities located Annie's dead body stuffed inside a utility panel in the basement of the lab she was last seen entering. Law enforcement would soon charge Raymond Clark III, a 24-year-old lab technician, with the murder of Annie Lay. Clark later pled guilty to the murder and attempted sexual assault of Annie and was sentenced to 44 years in prison. Joining me today is retired police lieutenant with the New Haven Police Department, Lisa Daddio, who helped spearhead the swift investigation of Annie's murder, as well as the subsequent apprehension of Clark. After working two decades in law enforcement, Lisa now serves as the assistant dean at the Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Science at the University of New Haven. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you most importantly for your service. Can you tell us what made this case so shocking? Why was it so gripping for the entire nation? This case is tough for a lot of reasons. Um, Before we get into, into the particulars of it, obviously, Um, A brilliant, uh, beautiful Yale graduate student uh, was murdered. And we can't take that away from Annie uh, and her family, and at the time, her fiancé, Jonathan Wadowski. Um, We have people that are murdered, unfortunately, throughout the year. Um, None typically receive the national and worldwide attention that this case did. 
And so, you know, that added a very different perspective to the investigation, one that for me personally, as well as most of the investigators that were involved in this had ever dealt with before because of the worldwide attention that it was getting due to the fact that it was a Yale University student at the time that had gone missing. And then obviously we kind of know where this ended up, but originally it was a missing person case. Um, And so there was a lot of pressure on us from the beginning um, to solve this case and uh, to find the people uh, or person responsible for the crime. There had been also other Yale University students that had been murdered in the city of New Haven prior to this, um, one of which is still unsolved, and that's the murder of Suzanne Joven. And just as tragic, um, unfortunately, no arrest has been made in that case, and the case is still a cold case, um, despite being looked at by multiple experts throughout the country. And so, you know, Suzanne's death is is definitely just as uh, tragic as anyone else that's been murdered in the city of New Haven and definitely as it compares to a Yale University student as well. So, you know, this case, um, we didn't get involved in it right away. We, meaning the New Haven Police Department in Connecticut, It was handled by Yale University Police Department. And so the way that it works here in New Haven and elsewhere throughout the country is that a lot of university police departments kind of come underneath city police departments. And so it's good. It's not bad. It's just that they're responsible for investigating certain types of crimes that happen on their campus. They're sworn police officers. They can make an arrest. They have the same training as we do. They're certified. So, you know, none of that is different. They just typically don't investigate crimes outside of Yale University. I've definitely gotten speeding tickets before by university police officers. So, yes, they can do everything. They can do everything, right? (laughs) They can do everything that we can do. Um, But like most university police departments, they don't handle major types of incidents. So in this case, a homicide Um, They may investigate uh, sexual assaults. Again, that's usually an agreement between the university and the police department that the university is in, the city police department. Um, They'll handle burglaries. Uh, Sometimes they'll handle robberies. Again, it depends as to what the agreement is. So in this particular case, when it started, it came in as a missing person case, you know, back in uh, 2009. And so what happens is, you know, Annie's roommate had reported her missing. Uh, Her roommate, Natalie, had reported her missing to Yale University Police Department, which is what is typically what typically would happen. Uh, Yale students know for most events, they call their police department to report things, thefts, break-ins, anything that isn't major. And even sometimes if it's major, they'll still call their police department. And then their police department will reach out to the New Haven Police Department if needed. So in this particular case, Yale University police officers responded to Annie's apartment um, to take, you know, this missing person complaint. But at first, you know, it was more of a, um, I don't want to call it like a, a suspicious incident because we, you know, we didn't know what happened. But, you know, basically a, a crime where, um a concerned citizen or something, because at the time, Annie wasn't considered missing yet. Her roommate was just really concerned that she hadn't come home and hadn't been able to reach her. 
So, you know, it came in like a welfare check, we would call it a lot of times where, you know, hey, I haven't heard from my mom. You know, can you go and check on her? I live in Florida. She's in Connecticut. And and we do that kind of stuff all the time. Law enforcement does all that kind of stuff all the time. So, you know, her roommate, Natalie, had actually contacted Yale to report that Annie hadn't come home, which is a little uncharacteristic of her. Typically, you know, um, they, they would have spoken throughout the day, but Annie was getting ready to get married. So everybody, you know, contributed to not really that big of a deal. She's trying to get a lot of things done before she heads off for her wedding. Um, but yet here it is, you know, um, after 10 o'clock at night and nobody has heard from Annie, a little concerning. And to your point, she was for listeners, it was five days, five days before she was set to be married. So one could chalk it. Okay. She's obviously out doing errands potentially at nighttime. And also she has this event that she has to be home for that is crucial. So there's heightened sensitivity around where she is. Yes. Safety. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, um, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty in these types of cases, to be quite honest with you. Um, yeah. You know, at the time, nobody really thought it was anything significant at 10 o'clock at night. You know, just thought that maybe she got caught up with work and maybe she misplaced her phone. I mean, who knows? Now, you know, looking at this case, you know, you're talking now 14 years later. Um, you know, th- this happened in 2009. We're now in 2023. So, you know, we're looking at it as what wasn't, you know, how would we react now in 2023 versus how we would have reacted in 2009. And it's different. You know, we're so connected to our cell phones now. We're so connected to social media. Um, We're so connected to everything. But back then it wasn't so driven like it is now. So I think that's an important perspective to put on it because everyone's like, you know, why didn't, you know, A, B, C, and D happen? I'm like, you're putting that you know, perspective based on what we know now and the way that our lives are now, not the way our lives were 14 years ago. You know, we weren't all so obsessed with our cell phones. But anyway, enough about that. So, you know, it, it's the Yale University did what anybody would do. They they go to where Annie would have been and where she was going on the morning uh, that she was last seen by her roommate. Uh, She had taken Yale transportation to go over to her office. You know, that's part of um, the medical building because she was a graduate student and um, was doing incredible work uh, and had received, you know, quite a substantial grant to do important research. So, you know, they went to her office and they reached out to her uh, advisor, her faculty advisor, because typically... She meets with her faculty advisor at two o'clock always on, in the afternoon. And he had reported that he had in fact canceled their appointment because he had things to do and it wasn't going to be in the office that day. So again, you start thinking like all this stuff and it's like, oh my gosh, had he not canceled the appointment, we would have known, you know, two, two thirty possibly that something was up because it it was highly uncharacteristic of her never to show and never. So uh, it would have set the whole thing possibly into a different direction um, had the meeting still been scheduled to go on and had she not showed up versus just not coming home later that evening. So, you know, Yale University officers go there. They find her cell phone. 
uh, and some personal belongings in her office. You know, again, unusual, maybe, maybe not. Back in 2009, not unusual for us to leave our phones, you know, somewhere when she was just going to literally go down the street, take care of her mice that were part of her research room and in her lab, and then come back and do whatever she needed to do and then go home. So again, not tip, not really unusual back in that time for all of that to happen. So then what Yale University police officers did was they actually then key cards, right? So back then and definitely much more now, uh, you need key cards to get into a lot of different buildings on Yale campus. Um, and so Annie's key carded going into 10 Amistad, which is a medical building, research building that's part of Yale University. And they know that she was there. She key cards into her lab room. Um, like I think it was like 10, 11 in the morning, which is consistent with everything. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they see her going into the building. They, um, see all of that, you know, trafficking with her ID. And then we also know for the most part, she's not seen leaving. And I say for the most part, because there's tons of cameras at all different entrances and exits and preliminary search is that she's not seen leaving, but we really don't know that depth of it until days later. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And just to set the bit of background to your point, you know, she was a doctoral student. She had gotten scholarships to study bioscience at University of Rochester. She'd majored in cell developmental biology, minored in medical anthropology. Um, and she grew up in San Jose, California, which is right near where I'm from in the Bay Area. So, uh, you know, she was to the rest of the world, the, an ambitious, highly accomplished, clearly curious um, just massively bright individual with her whole future ahead of her is an understatement. Again, set to be married in five days. So to your point, this was someone who clearly kept appointments, clearly kept her word. And she was 24 years old. So I think the also chances are a little bit less than maybe a teenager where you wonder, well, there, was there too much pressure and did she need a break? I mean, this was someone, this was a, an adult who was absolutely thriving in all respects and clearly in as much um, undergoing her responsibility, which is taking care of the mice and, and swiping into the building to take care of them in the morning um, and then would have gone to or would have failed to show up at that 2.30 appointment that was canceled. But so the, the scene set here to your point is, is an absolute um, wonderful accomplished individual where yes, anything out of the ordinary, sure it's not, but at the same time with her, it rang higher alarm bells. So. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. The The camera recorded her going in. Uh, you learned later it for sure never captured her leaving. But at that time, there was still the possibility that it just didn't pick up her leaving as university police were now investigating. Yeah. And, and you know what, too, like, and something and thank you, Emily, for bringing that up, too, about, you know, University of Rochester. That's where she also met her fiance, Jonathan. Mm. 
And so, you know, like they were undergrad sweethearts um, that continued through grad school. You know, Jonathan was going to, I believe it was Columbia uh, University down in New York for grad school. And here, you know, Annie was at the prestigious Yale University, uh, continuing to be brilliant and, and to have an impact on whatever path she would have ended up on, um, discovering metabolic diseases and, and biology and, and cellular uh, biology and that kind of stuff, and, and just really making an impact on science um, for the betterment of mankind, humankind, right? So, you know, to your point, yeah, for her not to go to somewhere or to come home or no one to hear from her was very, very odd. You know, there were some, we've had, unfortunately, times where students reach a real stressful time in their life and they just kind of go away for a few days, whether or not it's to a park or to a friend's house and they just want to disappear for a couple days to kind of regroup. And, And that definitely was something that people were thinking of in the beginning because it was, you know, kind of her wedding, right? She's from the West Coast. Jonathan's from the East Coast. Their um, ethnicities are different. And again, you know, we had no indication that that was an issue amongst either family, but you still have to look at it. You know, was she feeling pressure about getting married? Um, You know, was there anything there at the university that was going on that nobody knew about? Because sometimes students or even adults will keep that stuff to themselves Mm -hmm. and they don't want others to know that they're stressed or there's some issue happening uh, at work or at school in her case or both because she was both a student and also, you know, she was getting paid uh, for her research as well as a student, right? So, yeah, you know, we knew early on that there was no indications that she had left, but we couldn't be 100% sure. There were hours and hours and hours of footage and multiple camera angles that had to go through that one person just couldn't do um, because not all the images were in color. Some were in black and white. So that makes things much more difficult. And also, Emily, what had happened on this first day is there was a fire alarm that went off in the building and the whole building had evacuated and then gone back in. And this was early afternoon, around one-ish or so. So, you know, there was all of that footage as well in the midst of all of this that had to be gone through to see if, in fact, she was ever seen leaving the building during the fire alarm. Was that alarm pre-planned or was that, do we now, do we have any information about, was it the murderer? Yeah. So actually had nothing to do with it, um, believe it or not. So, you know, they they always say about uh, coincidences, right? No such thing as a coincidence. Well, this was actually had nothing to do with um, Annie's murder at all. And at first we thought it did when we got involved with it from the criminal side of it. um, Because we're like, there's just no way that the two aren't connected. And guess what? They weren't. Um, and, so it just led to your challenges, essentially, as law enforcement. What you inherited was just all the more difficult. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And then, you know, of course, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? It's easy to look back at this, you know, a couple of weeks after it happened, then here we are so many years later to be like, oh, we should have done this or we should have done that. I mean, we always do that in everything we do in life, right? Second guessing kind of what we did. But, you know, in Annie's case, um, it was still being treated as a missing person case. And Yale University had the lead. They stayed with it 
they contacted actually the FBI, the, um, we have a, a regional field office here in New Haven. And so they contact the FBI and all the time people are like, why do they call the FBI? Well, if Annie had been kidnapped and they're thinking that maybe that happened because she literally like disappeared, you know, in thin air, when somebody goes across state lines, it becomes a federal crime. So Yale University contacted the FBI field office for assistance in this case. Again, still thinking that it's a missing person, person maybe kidnapping, not thinking where this case ended up at all. Because again, think about it. How's that going to happen? You're in a, you know, a secure building. Um, everybody knows everybody. What is the likelihood of something really tragic and horrific happening and nobody hears it, nobody sees it, nobody knows about it happening? And yet it happened in this case. And, well, and, and so, you know. I think what's hard to stomach, and especially at the time, what's hard to ever, ever, obviously, as law enforcement, you appreciate and and treat it as, as an um, potential. But communities and campuses are insular. So to your point, you're like, no, no, of course it's not someone in the building. Anything bad you think stranger. Yes. So you're like, nope, this is a key card entry building, which must mean somehow someone either got in or she somehow slipped out. We didn't see her. And then she was abducted, taken across state lines or jurisdictions. Then it's a federal case. Boom. But the whole point is that you're supposed to be safe and protected and you're supposed to know your community on a campus. That's how that's part of the student, you know, part of the freedom there, um, the innocence. And so I hear what you're saying that the last thing you're thinking, although of course, as law enforcement, you absolutely consider it, is one of our own did this in one of our own very small community microcosm buildings, um, yeah. especially in that elite community, in the grad department, in the doctoral biology department, Absolutely. Yeah. And again, never thinking anything. And, yeah. and so, you know, early on, Yale University Police Department and the FBI had this investigation. Um, New Haven PD was not involved in this at all, and neither were the Connecticut State Police early on. And so it wasn't until a day or so later, um, I had gotten a call. I was heading into work and I got a call from uh, one of the sergeants at Yale University saying, hey, you know, Lee, can you spare some resources? We have this case. And I didn't even hear about it previous because Yale students tend to go missing sometimes. And it happens. And again, not thinking anything terrible happened ever because they don't typically, it doesn't end the way this one did, right? So, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, what do you need? He's like, I can really use some help, you know, interviewing people, kind of running down leads. I'm like, yeah, sure. And so I lent them uh, a sergeant and several detectives to help them with this missing person case. We have the resources way more than they do. You know, we're a large city police department by Connecticut standards. <laughs> and so we were allowed to provide resources to them. And we work very well with the Yale University Police Department. So we did. And, you know, that sergeant was reporting back to me continuously. And, and we continued that for about 16 hours or so a day, every day. And then um, I'll never forget it. I got a call. I believe it was on, on Saturday that said, you may want to come down here. We think this is something other than a missing person case. And so, you know, there was this big meeting at FBI headquarters in New Haven. 
um, the field office there where, you know, FBI was there, Yale University. I was there with uh, some of my people. Uh, the Connecticut State Police were there as well because they had been called in because they started finding items of concern in Annie's lab, uh, which is G13, which is a, a key lab and a key part of this case um, that we discovered when we started looking at key card access. So lo and behold, we all meet, uh, we have a conversation, the U.S. Attorney's Office is involved, the Connecticut State's Attorney, the New Haven uh, State's Attorney is there as well. And we're all talking about this case and kind of what does this mean? At this point, still, there's no Annie, by the way. But what um, were those items of concern, if you can describe or explain for us? Yeah, so um, I think it was like two days later. So um, on the 10th, I think it was, a grad student, uh, Sabrina Wood, had actually found a um, box of white balls. So kind of like paper towels in Annie's uh, lab room. Now, mind you, Emily, the building wasn't closed down at all because they're treating it as a missing person case. Mm -hmm. Again, not thinking that anything bad had happened. Not wrong in a lot of ways, right? right? Really not wrong. There was nothing that was obvious of foul play, right? So um, I I said Sabrina Wood. It It was actually Rachel. Sabrina Wood was the police officer, so I apologize for that. But Rachel had found a box of uh, white balls that um, had what appeared to be uh, blood on it, on the box, in Annie's room. And so she brought it to the attention of um, one of the officers that was kind of standing by the room at the time. Again, not nothing was closed off. The building was open. People could come and go as, as they normally would. Nothing was um, kind of odd at that point. And so FBI was contacted um, because they're the only ones that are involved at the time. And lo and behold, yeah, it looks like blood on a box of paper towels. And it wasn't just a little blood. It was little more than a little. Um, and, you know, they were concerned about that being in Annie's room and why was there that much of a transfer you know, contact between two surfaces that would have left that type of mark on the box. So um, while this was going on, you know, one of the animal technicians uh, who was identified as Raymond Clark kept going in and out of the room that day while people were there. Again, not unusual. He would take care of the mice as well. Um, You know, Annie was documenting everything that she needed to do in her lab book. And Ray was there to clean cages and clean the room and, and, and make sure that, you know, everything was fine for the research that wouldn't jeopardize um, what was going on in her room. So during that time, you know, Ray had what was commented to uh, a Yale University office. He like tried to move the box where the blood wasn't in the line of sight, which according to the student and the officer was a little suspicious to them. And it kind of raised a little bit of a concern to that. Up until that point, had he been among those interviewed by the sergeants that you lent there, that they were conducting these interviews 16 hours a day, 
for those pri- for those two days, was he among them? Had he yet been interviewed or not yet? And then so, out of nowhere, they're seeing the tech moving the box. Yeah. So he was interviewed, but not by New Haven people. He was interviewed by uh, Yale University and the FBI because he was the last one that was reported to have seen Annie alive by his own admission. So he was interviewed. That interview took place before they then saw him trying to move the box. Yeah. But they, he had been ruled out. Okay. Last he saw, he said she was, she was with the mice or whatever. And then I didn't see her again. Like yeah. whatever. And they were. And like, he okay, said good. that when he last saw her, she was going to launch and, and she was leaving. Okay. And so, and that was before the fire alarm went off. So he report, he reported that. So then the law enforcement was just like, all right, she's not on the cameras, but you know, maybe we missed her on the cameras and. Well, and we were still going through footage at that point. Emily. So, oh. I mean, because there was so much of it that we couldn't say with a hundred percent certainty that she did not leave the building. And then one of the other things about the building is there is like, um, where the trucks come in on, in and out on a daily basis to take out garbage and medical waste and whatever. I mean, there's constantly that type of activity happening in that building as well. So, you know, that area isn't covered fully by cameras. Which feeds into that stranger narrative, too, of there's all this sort of currency occurring, you know, and drivers in and out and and toxic waste being, you know, deposited or whatever. That's all happening at the back door. Security cameras don't necessarily cover that. And therefore, there's always. And, And the other thing, too, at the time when this happened, there's there were no cameras on any of the floors. So like it always comes up when we talk about this case, they're like, what about cameras, you know, off the elevator, on the, in the hallway? I'm like, there weren't any. Right. So to, there were cameras on all the outside, right? Um, there were cameras, uh, one, I think on the inside where the elevators are, and that is it. So we had no footage of her getting off the elevator, of her getting on the, you know what I mean? Yes. On, get going down to her floor, which was in the lower level. There were no cameras of that inside the building at all at that time. And I say at that time, cause I'm assuming it's changed mm-hmm. um, because of this incident, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what they did have was key card access. So, I couldn't go into your lab, for example, by just opening the door. I would have to key card in to your lab if I had access to it. You know, just because, you know, my key card works in G13, which was Annie's lab room, doesn't mean that your key card is going to get you access to my research room. Right. Totally. Right. And the doors were incredibly heavy steel lab doors like you would see in any other type of laboratory because you're protecting the research being conducted in that room. And and in Annie's case, it dealt with mice. So there's, there were rows and rows and rows of mice in cages um, in her lab room. And every room was different as to what was going on. And not all the rooms down there were labs. Some were um, like, uh, like cleaning rooms, you know, and there was a locker room down there and there's a bathroom down there. So you have all that stuff in it as well. But again, you need your key card. Um, and it's not like, oh, you can hold the door open and prop it open because because the doors are really heavy. Um, so that isn't happening at that point. So we find this box of white balls. Um, at, and, and that was the, the first kind of major 
major break in the case where people started saying something's a little up about this. The other thing that was noted by one of the Yale University uh, officers that were there was that Raymond Clark started like, while all this stuff is going on, he starts uh, cleaning and scrubbing the floor in G13, which is Annie's lab room. Again, you know, hindsight's 2020. Is that normal? I don't know. You know, why is he scrubbing the floor? Um, is that something that would happen on a normal basis? It, it's not even like we could have asked him that because, uh, and I'm kind of talking ahead, he didn't end up talking to us about any of this once he was identified as a person of interest in right. this case. Right. So I couldn't say to him, well, tell me what your day is like. You know, what do you normally do in your lab rooms? Like none of that was anything that we could have had access to because he just would not speak to us once he was identified as, as being involved in this. So, you know, all this stuff is kind of going on. Um, we find the box of uh, white balls and we also find a lab coat that was in a uh, recycling box that had reddish brown and color stains on it. And that was found, um, I think it was the day, uh, no, it was actually two days. It was the same day as the, as the box of white balls. We find some blood. Again, you know, not always unusual depending on what type of research is being done, but now you have the box of white balls that have a little more than a drop. And then now you have a lab coat that has some blood on it. And at this point, the decision was made, you know what, we better lock down the building, um, stop everybody from coming in and out, and let's start treating this as a crime scene. Um, and I say we, we're still not involved in it at this point from a major crime perspective. It's still being handled a little bit like a missing person case. Maybe there's some foul play. Um, we're still not 100% sure at this point. Um, and, you know, we then start, we get involved with this, uh, a little bit later and we take over the criminal investigation of it. The, the New Haven state's attorney comes out to say, you know what, this isn't a missing person case. You have found now a couple of items that have blood on it. Let's start treating it as what it is that there's foul play involved. Um, our goal at this point was to find Annie. Um, where is she? And so, you know, we couldn't say for sure if um, she left the building. We're still combing through all the video. And, and we had uh, FBI analysts and police officers assisting in that because there was just so many camera angles to go through. And we were now going through the day that Annie went missing in all the days up until we closed the building down. Because just because we didn't see her on the 9th didn't mean that she didn't walk out of there on the 10th. Right. Um, highly unlikely. But again, you, you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, kind of going through all of that in a really painstaking process. And at this point, we're operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We meaning New Haven Police Department, the Connecticut State Police, Yale University Police Department, FBI. Um, we are, the Connecticut State Police come in to process uh, the crime scene, all of the basement of, of 10 Amistad. New Haven PD has the lead in the investigation. 
Yale University Police Department is assisting, um, securing the building, making sure nobody goes into the rooms, you know, kind of like an ancillary part. And if we need uh, certain types of information or data uh, or key card access or video footage, we, we have them. And then the FBI was providing tremendous support to us in this investigation because they have resources that local and state agencies don't have. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. This is like, it's such a beautiful, albeit tragic example of law enforcement, different jurisdictions and agencies working seamlessly together. Um, And again, just to underscore for viewers, we are now one day before she was supposed to get married. So every day that's going by as now the, it's shifted from a missing persons investigation to now a crime scene unit and find Annie and determine what's going on while understanding that there's foul play. This is not an elective disappearance. Um, and her wedding day is around the corner. So the, the, I think again, you, you talked earlier about the national attention on this, um, and the pressure, but also because this was a bride to be in with a really emotional, special day the next day. Yeah. And, and you know, Emily, I have to tell you, we, me included, I really didn't think it was going to end the way it did. I I don't know why. I just didn't think it. Um, Even though, you know, we started finding little things, there was still, um, all of us had it, this level of hope that she was just stressed out. And, you know, something that came up in this in the beginning was the whole runaway bride thing. Um, There had been other instances, high profile, that had occurred previous to this, And so there was the thought early on that this was one of those types of incidents. This was a runaway bride thing. Um, Again, you know, I'm a city detective. So that to me, no, Um, I I don't see that. But there had been cases. So initially, that was a possibility. Um, Kidnapping, obviously, was definitely one as well. Um, And again, not thinking foul play. To your point, what you, you know, you're talking about a college campus. You're thinking, you know, she's in a building that you need key card in. You know, who's going to hurt a student? Never thinking the way this case ended up um, ending, ever. So what came next? Was it the discovery of Annie's body or was it the discovery of the dark past of Raymond Clark? So it actually was the smell of decomposition in the building. And then the discovery of Annie's body. So the building has a multi-million dollar ventilation system in it for obvious reasons. While investigators are there processing the crime scene, they start to smell decomposition. And anybody can tell you there's no other smell like it in the world. Human decomposition is very different than animal decomposition. And anybody who's done this type of work can tell you as soon as they smell it, that there's a dead body somewhere. There's nothing else like it. Um, And so that's what happens. The issue came is where you have multiple floors, you have multiple rooms, you have drop ceilings, you have this substantial building. It's where is she? Because the ventilation system is helping hide that, mask it. So the decision was made to bring in a cadaver dog. 
um, for our listeners, you know, and our viewers that are, are going to be watching this, you know, they are trained to smell decomposition and they could do it over bodies of water. They could do it over buried graves. They can do it. Um, if bodies are somewhere else that the smell can come out concrete is, is an issue. They can't obviously smell it in that. Um, but the cadaver dogs will alert to decomposition. Uh, and that's what happened in this case. So we brought in uh, cadaver dogs. They alerted to a particular uh, area in the lower level. And lo and behold, uh, we find her. And can you describe for listeners um, the compartment that she was in? Would there be no way that someone would be, would it have been part of the search after the lockdown? Was it remote? Was it, you know, what exactly was that access like? Yeah. So, you know, where she was found was she was found in a wall. Um, so, no, we would never have found her there. In 20 years of law enforcement, I have never had uh, a body that was placed into a wall. Now, people are like, well, how could you be placed in a wall and you not know it? Well, Annie was tiny. She was not even five feet, or maybe she was five feet, and she was like 90 pounds. She was a little thing. And so what had happened was she fit into what we call like a mechanical vat. Uh, it's a think of a metal uh, plate that is on a wall where shutoff valves are. Right. And so that plate was removed and she was placed into the wall and the plate was put back on. And there was uh, a wall on both sides. So it was completely encased. Now, if it wasn't for the vat that obviously isn't the metal plate that isn't uh, sealed tightly because it isn't you know, who knows what would have happened. Like if it was airtight and, and you didn't have to worry about it, I don't know what would have happened. Eventually there probably would have been some seepage and, and we won't go into those graphic details. Um, but, you know, that's where the odor was coming from was that metal plate and the fact that it wasn't airtight against the wall. And just to underscore as well that cadaver dogs, with the exception, I guess, of concrete, but when you bring in canines, they never fail. The asset amplification that canines are for law enforcement can never be overstated. And it always, it, it never ceases to amaze me, but I, it never surprises me, the speed with which canines come in and identify or locate or alert. I mean, it's, it's literally upon release, within two minutes, you have the alert and it's really a phenomenal asset amplification. And Absolutely. I'm, I'm grateful that you guys deployed that, that resource. We had to, you know, we really, the canine can do something that we can't do, right? They, obviously we picked up on the smell too, but they can bring you to right where it is. And, and mm -hmm. canines are now trained and we know they're trained in arson accelerants and narcotics and missing persons. And now we can train them for electronic detection and firearm evidence and firearms, especially if it's been recently discharged and um, bombs and, you know, explosives and IEDs and, and you name it, um, their value to the law enforcement community as a whole, military as well, not just local, state or federal, the military uses canines as well.
is astronomical to hopefully preventing crimes from occurring or in aiding uh, in the detection of evidence directly related to crimes. That's right. So, um, or even missing persons or endangered persons, you know, when somebody has gone missing, you use them as well. So yeah, we brought the canines in, they alerted. um, And then of course we, uh, we find Annie's body. um, And the, the, again, the, to underscore the tragedy, you found her body on the day that she was supposed to get married to her college sweetheart on September 13th, I believe. That is correct. Yeah, 2009. That is correct. And um, yeah, you know, it, it's just recently that I was able to say that when I talk about this case and not get choked up. Um, so here we are so many years later and the impact of that on all of us every person that was involved in this case, and, and there were a lot of us, um, that finding her on that day, it's like, why did we have to do that? You know, um, for the family, for her fiance and his family who were just incredible. It just, it was, it was catastrophic. Um, I can only proffer that closure at that time is priceless and therefore, um, perhaps closure outweighed 24 hours of agonizing, not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you, this is again, going back to the amplification of canines, will law enforcement as the absolute apex and pinnacle, you know, your, your role in assuring closure and finding closure for this family and for her fiance is priceless. It can never be described adequately with words, um, the difference that you and all of your colleagues made, the fundamental impact on their lives. Thank you. And it was a true, you know, Emily, it was a true effort by hundreds of people over the span of a week or so, right? I think it was like nine days, including, and we we can't underscore the the importance of the forensic analysis that was done uh, at the forensic lab here in Connecticut. You know, they were rock stars. Um, their analysis allowed us to tie uh, who ended up being arrested for this horrific crime, Raymond Clark, uh, to it. His DNA, Annie's DNA, were on several items of evidence that we found uh, that he tried to hide, um, but we uncovered them. And you know, from every single FBI agent and analyst and civilian and sworn and, and Yale University and even the media in a lot of ways, really were instrumental to this. Our state's attorney's office, who were available to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, judges who were signing umpteen search warrants that we had requested and the arrest warrant. And it truly was quasi seamless. Um, By far, it was, I think, the most efficiently run investigation involving so many agencies ever prior, you know, leading up until my retirement with the New Haven Police Department. And so, you know, we worked as a team, even though we all had different roles and one was never better than the other because we put our egos aside. We put who our three letter agencies are or four letter agencies, you know, aside and focused on Annie and bringing justice to her and her family and her fiance um, and, you know, arresting the person responsible for this horrific, horrific crime. 
You centered her rather than centering yourself. Centering Always. Yourself. It's never about us. And so just to flesh out what we touched on before, Lisa, so Raymond J. Clark III, he was also 24. Um, he was that lab technician and he didn't have a criminal record. He didn't have a personnel record. But in 2003, uh, there was a report of an incident between him and his high school girlfriend in which she alleged that he forced her to have sex with him, although she did not file charges. And some former coworkers called him controlling and volatile. Um, he eventually pled guilty for the attempted sexual assault and murder of Annie, and he was sentenced to 44 years in prison for that heinous crime. Can you describe briefly how soon after, so you discover her body, did you immediately, all of you with, of course, appropriate due process reservation, did you immediately think of him? Or was he one of then the potential people of interest? And it took, again, the evidence that you recovered, you realized he was trying to hide things through search. You know, at what point were the dots connected? Was it immediate or did it take a bit more investigation before focusing on him? Yeah. So, you know, he was definitely um, one of a few people early on in the investigation because he was the last one that saw her alive um, that we know of by his own his own statements. And we couldn't rule out other people that were in the building at the time and on that floor at the time that were outside contractors that had come in to do work in there. And so all of those individuals had also been interviewed, had agreed to give uh, DNA samples to be used. And as things started happening, uh, Ray did speak to the FBI early on and actually um, he was interviewed by them and he had some injuries on his body that pictures were taken. Uh, he agreed to it early on. Now, again, he's not identified at this point. He's just one of several people that they are talking to that had access to Annie at the time that she went missing. And so, you know, again, we had all that and he was cooperative in the beginning. Um, and then obviously when we, you know, we started doing some analysis, we started getting things, we found out that, um, he wasn't just a person of interest. He was, he was the one responsible. And so um, we needed to wait for some things to come through. We had done a, a search warrant for uh, different biological samples to be taken from him, his hair, um, different, from different parts of his body, uh, his fingerprints and all that kind of stuff to be compared with a lot of evidence that had been recovered by the Connecticut State Police as they were doing the scene in the whole lower level of 10 homicide. And so, and then the forensic lab had confirmed um, that it was his DNA that were on numerous items of evidence. And so that on top of key card access. Mm. So one of the aha moments in this, um, one of the Connecticut State Police detectives that was involved in this case with us had started looking at all the key card uh, data that Yale had provided to us and what uh, it was detective uh, in Salaka, Ray and Salaka, what he had uncovered was that Raymond Clark had key carded a ton of times into different rooms in the lower level of 10 Amistad after uh, Annie had gone missing. And on the day that uh, Annie was last known to be alive, 
he had key carded in her room and he was in there for a really long period of time. And then he had key carded in and out, in and out, in and out multiple times that day and subsequent days until we locked down the building, which was uncharacteristic of any other days, weeks and months prior. Um, again, circumstantial evidence, is it direct? Does it mean anything? No. However, you know, um, it's, uh, it was unusual. And so that all became part of, of putting the arrest affidavit together uh, for this case while we waited for more forensic evidence to come in and the analysis of that evidence to come in. We couldn't do a lot until we had that for sure. At this point, Ray had already retained an attorney. We had placed um, surveillance on him at that point to make sure he didn't disappear. We weren't being covert about it. We were actually being very overt about it. I didn't care that he knew he was being followed. Um, it, it didn't mean anything to us at all at that point. We were building the case at this point and, and trying to check off a few more boxes to make sure that our arrest warrant was as strong as it possibly could be at the time so we can get him off the street. Did he ever sort of a nauseatingly um, <laughs> detailed question, but did he ever explain that, you know, was the, was the murder not premeditated and that it was sparked by her refusals and her fighting off his attempted sexual assault? Is that how he explained it? Did he ever he didn't explain anything? Okay. He, we don't know the why. And, you know, it's one of those things as an investigator and those investigators that may be listening to this can relate to this question. It, it's hard when you don't know the why. And what was the trigger? Mm -hmm. You know, we found nothing that was indicative of anything between the two of them. No text messages, no emails, no reports of anything. Like nothing existed electronically between the two of them um, that, you know, they, they were having any disagreements or that there was anything romantic between the two of them. Um, nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And Annie never even talked about him to anybody. So, you know, we don't know. We don't know the why. Um, we don't know. It, it, was, it was a brutal, brutal murder, you know, without getting into the details to protect the family. I mean, it was, it was full of rage and anger. And, and I, we don't know why. We don't know what the trigger of that event is. Now, what you brought up about, you know, the ex-girlfriend coming forward and what other people had reported, we didn't know that at the time. And, and we were digging through his history to see if there were any indicators of anything that would tell us he had a temper or that there were previous domestic or uh, sexual assault. Nothing, 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 nothing uh, existed anywhere. Not in his personnel file, no criminal, anything, anywhere and his ex-girlfriend didn't even come to us originally. She, I think, ended up going on Good Morning America or something to report all of that. And that's how we found out about it. Um, we weren't even aware of her until after the fact. Uh, and, and Ray, at this point, had already been arrested. Lisa, thank you for your service and for, again, this this priceless closure that you brought this family for that seamless, um, selfless work that you collaborated with with all of these different agencies. I think this is such an impressive case for those reasons and um, for the deep empathy and 
care that you show and compassion that you show for Annie and her memory and the family. I'm so grateful to you for that. Is there any final thoughts or message or point that you want to make for listeners before we close? No, you know, um, never forget kind of why we do what we do and always remember the victim and their family. Um, and, and you said it perfectly, Emily, empathy, right? Um, and so sometimes it gets hard because we see so much death, but at the same time, our victims deserve to be treated humanely. And we have to give always 110% when we do these types of investigations, no matter who they are. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. To stay up to date on the latest true crime headlines, subscribe to the Fox True Crime Minute with Laura Engel wherever you listen to podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.